Well, good evening. Before we begin, we're going to have Dr. Powers take roll, right? All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. I trust you guys have a good day. What do you think about this weather? Winter's on its way. All right. You need to know that this week is the week that um, NBC is having their annual Board of Trustees meetings this week. And tomorrow evening, our president's going to be sharing his report with us. So I encourage you to come. Come back tomorrow evening to hear his report and to hear uh, his report for the college, some goals and some visions that they have for the college. So tomorrow evening, come back for chapel and join us. Our speaker for this evening is also a, a member of the Board of Trustees, and he's a district superintendent of North Arkansas District, Rand, Dr. Randy Berkner. And he's, can we welcome him? He agreed to come a day early and minister to us this evening. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Good evening. I'm assuming all of you know about Murphy's Law. If there's anything that can go wrong, it will go wrong. Uh, there is probably no place where that uh, principle is in action any more than in a wedding. I could write a book, in fact, on zany things that have taken place at weddings. In fact, one day I plan to do just that. And when I do, I'm going to include this story about Tammy. Tammy was uh, and is a server at Cracker Barrel Restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin. When I lived there, uh, I was being a son of the South and being out of Georgia, I looked for a place where I could find sweet tea and grits. And so I uh, located a Cracker Barrel. This young lady became fast friends with my wife and I as we uh, went there frequently. And one day she came in very excited and uh, she shared with me that her boyfriend had asked her to marry him and she was so excited. She began to uh, talk with tears in her eyes about the excitement related to preparing for the wedding. In a few moments I realized that she had not thought far enough in advance to think about where she was going to be marrying and uh, who was going to officiate at the ceremony. And so I asked her, at the risk of sounding presumptuous, I asked her if she had a place, and I thought perhaps I could find a place over at First Church of the Nazarene there, uh, my home church. And uh, I said, uh, and at the risk of sounding presumptuous, I'm wondering if you haven't already got somebody to officiate, if you would mind me officiating. And you thought I'd given her a $1,000 bill. She was so excited, hugged me. And so we were off and running and decided that since nobody else in the wedding party seemed to have any clue about how to officiate at a wedding or run a wedding, my wife became the unofficial wedding planner. Everything was going very fine until during the ceremony when her dad and her were marching down the center aisle. They got right before me and all eyes were on her father when, you know, we ministers always ask that question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? 
All eyes were looking at her father when all of a sudden his tuxedo pants fell to his shoes. And he's standing there in boxer shorts, not for very long. He bent over, quickly raised him up, and sheepishly made his way to the second row. Uh, all I could do was say, let us pray. <laughs> I knew that if I started laughing, everybody would lose it. But there was a collective gasp, and my wife was in the sound booth and trying to keep it together. But she knew if she caught my eye, I would lose all composure. And so she was rolling on the floor laughing in the sound booth. You may have seen that, or at least, uh, well, you probably have seen it. It's been rerun so many times. It's been on America's Funniest Videos. Murphy's Law was definitely working that day. Murphy's Law was evident at a wedding in Cana, a small town uh, just outside of Nazareth. Mary, Jesus, and his disciples were all invited. And because social standing is a really big deal in Jewish culture in that day, it's safe to assume that this was a peasant's wedding that we find described in John chapter 2. Otherwise, Mary would not have been there. She was a peasant girl. Now you need to understand that weddings were and still are a big deal in Jewish culture and there's a certain protocol to be followed. If the bride was a virgin, the wedding took place on Wednesday, and if the bride was a widow, it was on Thursday. The ceremony would occur in the evening after a day of feasting. The father of the bride would take his daughter in his arm with a wedding party in tow, and they would uh, parade through the village streets so that everyone could come out and wish them well. Finally, the wedding party would arrive at the groom's home where the wedding actually took place at the front door. The wedding ceremony itself took quite a while and the festivities lasted for days. After the ceremony, the bride and groom walked through the streets and they would be accompanied by flaming torches and their attendants walked with them and kind of held a canopy over their heads and they would always take the longest route through the village so that as many people as possible could come out and congratulate them. There was really no such thing as a honeymoon as we know it today. Instead, the couple held what I would consider to be kind of a week-long open house in which they were considered uh, almost like royalty. Anything they asked for, they got. They even dressed in fancy clothes and sometimes actually wore crowns. The groom's family was expected to provide all the refreshments for this week. And with this cultural context in mind, let's, let's lean into the scripture lesson now. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the first day, a wedding took place at Canaan, Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. I like these next words. They did so. Simple yet profound. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The crowd is there and so is Murphy. Several who didn't RSVP apparently showed up and the wine ran out. But I just want you to remember tonight that wherever there's a problem, whenever there's a challenge, there's an opportunity for a miracle. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus' mother nudges him into action, declaring to the servants, do whatever he tells you, but he's a bit reluctant. He says, my time has not yet come. But then he proceeds to give instructions. He, he was a reluctant hero that day. And he, and he told the servants, fill these six stone water jars, fill them up with water. That was no small task. The, the scripture writer, John, says that uh, each of them held between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, I was no math major, but I, I think I could figure this one out. It's about 180 gallons. That's no small feat. And the gospel writer says they complained because no one else was working that day. No. <laughs> the gospel writer says they argued with Jesus that the work was too tough. No, I don't think so. He says they filled them to the brim. No shortcuts. It was obedience to the nth degree. It was absolutely what they were told to do. Jesus went on to say, now I want you to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And I believe Jesus captures their obedient spirit in that simple yet profound phrase, they did so. And what did Jesus do in response to their perfect obedience? In the words of Paul Harvey, I, I know that you know the rest of the story. He miraculously transformed water into award-winning wine. I propose to you this evening, however, that this isn't just the story and narrative of what Jesus did. It's the story of what Jesus does. This was the first miracle, and it, it gives us a glimpse of his modus operandi, his mode of operation. It, it may be a stretch, I don't know, it may be a stretch to, to call it a prototypical miracle, but, but it certainly establishes a pattern, and, and here's the pattern. Jesus usually enlists the cooperation of others, those who are obedient, to perform the miraculous. That'd be a good place to say amen. <laughs> I encourage you to do some study on the miracles and, and test me on this one. There, there are just a, a number of cases where it, it looks like this is the pattern that's established. Now, I know there are some exceptions, but this seems to be the pattern. Let me give you three quick examples. In John chapter 6, where one kid said he liked that miracle where everybody loafs and fishes, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, in this particular case, uh, Jesus not only partnered with that little lad, but he also enlisted the help of his disciples. He said to them, have the people sit down and, and distribute the food among them. He could have done it all by himself. Sometimes he does. 
But on this occasion, he enlisted the cooperation of his disciples to engage them also in the miracle. John chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind. Jesus, it says, spat on the ground and he made some mud and he put it on a man's eyes, but he, he didn't stop there. He said to this man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He could have done that all by himself. And sometimes he does. But he asked this man to cooperate with him in the miraculous. In John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. A dramatic scene. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, perhaps you have visited that site where they believe that Lazarus' tomb still exists. I've been there, and it is an awesome place. But Jesus stood there before the tomb containing the body that had been lifeless now for four days. Once again, he enlists the cooperation of those around him. Jesus directed the onlookers that day, take away the stone. They obeyed and they stood in, in amazement as Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave. Lazarus came out, the Bible says, wrapped hand and foot with linen. And then Jesus, uh, I, I guess to reinforce the point that he was working with them that day, he said, okay, boys, uh, uh, they, he still got grave clothes on. I need you to help me. Help take the grave clothes off of him and let him go. He could have performed all of these miracles. He could perform any miracle all by himself, but he partnered with other people. And in each case, these folks became eyewitnesses to miracles. Why? Because they did whatever Jesus told them to do. Now, Jesus still speaks today. We believe that, don't we? You go some places and say that, and they're about ready to wrap you up in the, you know, in the white jacket and take you to the funny farm. We believe that Jesus still speaks today. Lloyd Ogilvy said it this way, uh, the bush is still burning. My friend Terry Toller wrote the song, He Still Speaks. Now, God no longer speaks through burning bushes, or at least the last time I checked, he hadn't been doing that. But he has many other ways by which he communicates with us. Usually, it's through his word, the Bible. God's inspired and inspiring word. Usually, he speaks to us through this vehicle. But he has chosen also to speak sometimes through uh, preachers and teachers and professors. And, and uh, Earl Lee used to say, uh, sometimes he speaks to us through those who are closest to us. And for him, that was his wife, Hazel. Remember that, those of you who are married, sometimes when you think it's your wife nagging you, maybe it's Jesus speaking through her. <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. Through whatever means he speaks. I've discovered that he seldom shouts, but he's usually whispering. I was preaching one day in a, a church I pastored in Virginia. I uh, went back for a homecoming, and, and during the middle of the service, a lady stood up, and she started uh, railing and, and was mad at God, and she, she was shaking her fist, and she was red in the face, and, and I think she was just testing me to see what kind of response I would have to her anger toward God. And after she was done, she said, uh, frankly, she said, I, I curse God. <laughs> And after she was done, I said, you know, I can identify. I've been mad at God, too. That kind of diffused it a little bit. And I said, the truth is that there are a lot of times that I have shaken my fist in the face of God. I've never cursed God, as far as I know. 
but I've been angry at God, and, and I've discovered something that when I am shouting at God with my uh, fist clenched, usually he is trying whispering to me, but I can't hear him because I'm so busy shouting. That seemed to help that lady. He still speaks, usually through his whispers. Someone has said if Jesus played hide-and-seek, he would always lose. He wants to reveal himself. He wants to speak to us. He wants to uh, make himself known to us. He wants to speak peace into our lives and assurance and, and direction into our lives. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. But how do we know? How do we know whether it's the Lord's voice or not? I, I would just say very quickly this evening, and this is a real challenge for me, by the way, to, to preach in this a short amount of time this evening. I'm trying to help you professors out, but let me just say, let me just say, I, I'm not helping the students out, am I, by preaching short? You'd rather stay in here for a while to go to class, I guess. But let me just say this. Uh, you can, you can tell if it's the voice of the Lord uh, to some degree by this fact. He will never say anything to you that contradicts the Bible. I had a, a young lady came to me one time when I was her pastor, and she said, uh, Pastor, my, my boyfriend and I have prayed through. We're going to live together, uh, but we're not going to get married. We've prayed through on this, and, and she expected my blessing. And I said, no, you didn't. You didn't pray through on that. There's some things you don't even need to pray about, those that are very clearly laid out in Scripture. So he'll never tell us to do anything that contradicts the Bible. He'll never tell us to do anything that contradicts his nature, that is the nature of holiness and love. Over in chapter 10 of John, John employs the analogy of a shepherd and a sheep, and you know the story, or you know the analogy. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and... The idea here is that sheep uh, live so close to the shepherd that they know his voice and they listen to him. It's that intimacy with Jesus that enables us to know his voice. That's why it's so important that we stay in his word and, and stay with him, communing with him in prayer, not only speaking but listening. Whenever you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Now, sometimes we turn a deaf ear because he may be asking us to do something that appears to be very foolish. And sometimes we don't like to hear what uh, we, we don't like what we hear because he may be moving us out of our comfort zone. Amen? In fact, I've discovered that most of the time when Jesus is speaking to me, he is speaking to me about missional things. He's prompting me to get out of my comfort zone and to uh, deal with the things that is closest to his heart, and that is reaching lost and broken people. Uh, I, I want to tell you a story, and before I tell you, I want to I just assure you that I know that I'm breaking one of the rules of homiletics by telling you this, because it puts me in a kind of a good light. I probably shouldn't do that. Uh, I, there are many times I don't get it right. Let me just say it that way, okay? I don't get it right all the time, but this time I think I got it right. The Lord prompted me the other day to do something that uh, turned out to be pretty good, an illustration of being spirit-led and having Jesus speak to you. In our neighborhood, we have uh, a family that has 13 children and a 14th on the way. So they've 
They have uh, 15 right now and soon be 16. They live right across the street from us and uh, they rent the place and they don't keep it up very well and uh, everybody in the neighborhood, including this preacher, has probably groused about our, our property values going down while the, the house around them is going down. Not too long ago, about a month ago now, someone decided that they would try to nudge them out of the neighborhood, and so they took some blue spray paint and went to their mailbox. It's, it's a brick mailbox, and they spray painted on it the words, Get Out, and just proceeded to spray blue paint all over it. Well, I didn't get mad. I got righteously indignant about it. I, I just was kind of ticked off. And after I got ticked off, then I heard the voice of the Lord speaking to me, and I, I remembered that I have a, uh, a pressure cleaner in my shop. And so I went to my shop, and I pulled out this pressure cleaner. And I'm not very good at being a handyman, but I, and, and so I, I was trying to fiddle with the hoses, and I, I, don't, I didn't know how to do it. I don't use it enough. So after I got wet to my underwear, <laughs> I got in there finally to the point where I could spray all the blue paint off. It took me about an hour to spray it off. But I got all the words off, and the whole family was out there watching, and they thought I was some kind of a, a superhero or something. Well, I was just doing what you would have done. I was trying to listen to the voice of the Lord. A couple of weeks later, my uh, granddaughter came down from Virginia and got acquainted with some of the kids, especially two twins in this family of 15. Uh, the twins named Gabby and Abby. And uh, she asked me if it would be okay if she invited Gabby and Abby to the children's crusade at Conway First Church of the Nazarene. They were having uh, an illusionist, uh, and uh, they wanted to, uh, she wanted to invite them to be a part of that evening. And so I said, sure, invite them. And that evening they came. I, I, I took them over to the church and sat by them during the, all the proceedings. And uh, toward the end of the evening, Pastor Terry uh, opened the altar and he invited any child that wanted to come to receive Jesus to come. And these two girls, Gabby and Abby, came forward and they accepted Jesus into their life. Now, uh, I don't think it was coincidence. I, I think that there was a seed planted because I was, at least this time, obedient to the voice of Jesus. Uh, it doesn't always have to be big things. It doesn't always have to be about uh, going to Swaziland or going some far-flung corners of the world. It, it doesn't always have to be the big things. But I'm convinced we don't talk near enough about being spirit-led. We talk about being spirit-filled, but we, if we're spirit-led, we'll hear the voice of Jesus asking us to do some of the simplest things that yield some of the biggest results. But if you're like me, so oftentimes we delay when Jesus asks us to do something. I, I call it the someday syndrome. But in laying down the terms of discipleship, Jesus paraphrased his mother's words, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. H have you ever wondered why some people seem to have a corner on the miracle market? Do you have miracle envy? You ever looked around and said, you know, there, there are people over there that they're see, seeing God do some awesome things, and, and, and I wonder what's wrong with me or what's wrong with us. I am convinced that uh, ordinary people who just listen to the voice of God will see extraordinary things done in and through their lives as they cooperate with Jesus in the performance of a miracle. Now, this text has profound implications for us corporately as well. 
And most of us here in this room tonight are either in pastoral ministry or headed that way. By the way, if Jesus tells you to come to North Arkansas, that's okay. A good DS never misses an opportunity to recruit. <laughs> pastors and, and would-be pastors, don't be afraid to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. For God has not given us a spirit, well, I thought it was up on the screen. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Yeah, for, for too long, we, we have cowered before dream-killing, growth-restricting, faith-deflating, comfort-seeking individuals whose number one purpose in life is to maintain status quo. And they love to say we've never done it that way before. If we always do what we've always done, we'll always get what we've always got. But we keep doing the same things. We, we've been conditioned to do the certain things that we saw God do, the way God worked in a previous day, but this is a new day, and God wants to do a new thing among us. And there's slim pickings around our fruit trees lately, have you noticed? God wants to do such a new thing in the old church. The Native American wisdom has taught us whenever you discover you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. <laughs> you got my blessing to dismount if it's not working. Just dismount. You don't need my blessing, but you've got it. And for those of us who think outside, inside the box and, and color between the lines, we need to hear and heed Mary's word challenge to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. To do this is to position yourself where God can do something miraculous in and through you. To God be the glory. Our Father, thank you for this miracle that reminds us as do other miracles, that you do enlist the cooperation of people around you to see your miraculous deeds come to pass. Give us courage to believe that you can use any ordinary person with extraordinary obedience and trust to change our world for your glory. Thank you for these students, these professors, and administrators who are here this evening. Thank you for what is taking place here on this hill. Continue, we pray, to equip every student here for ministry that will take them into places they never dreamt possible. May they exercise courage because you have not given to any of us a spirit of fear. And so I pray, God, your blessing upon them this evening and perhaps even tonight you are speaking to some. And I pray, Lord, that our response would be, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let us stand and be dismissed in song. Man, go in his peace. Mm -hmm.